it's about first adapters, right? How do people become first adapters? And one of the and of course they always they they make game winning game changing decisions when front confronted by uncertainty and they to win they ask and answer the question what are the winning options on my game board that others don't see and i think that's what we're talking about all right welcome everyone to a new episode of the neuroflex podcast i am your host toby passman i'd really love to hear from you guys if you guys have any comments questions ideas for future shows, people, guests that you'd like to see on the show. Uh, if there's anyone that you have in mind, please reach out to me. Shoot me a DM at Neuroflex Florida. That's N-U-R-O-F-L-E-X Florida on Instagram. You could also shoot me an email, toby at neuroflex.com. Love to connect with you guys. For today's interview, we have a very special guest, Dr. Stephen Feinberg. Dr. Feinberg is the leading authority on neurostrategy, the field of brains, games, and foes. He advises game-changing leaders and entrepreneurs for over 35 years, including Apple, Google, and Visa, with $250 million in gain and leadership impact. His latest research is on the game of patterns, winning the metagame. So Stephen, we're really excited to have you on the show today. Well, thanks for inviting me. I look forward to our conversation. Likewise, likewise. So tell me a little about what originally spurred your interest in coaching, how you became an executive coach in the first place. Well, we could say that that when, when I was a kid, I um, living in New York City, I, I there was a point in time where I, I was, um, I slept out on the fire escape. <laughs> and... Um, we, my parents were having some money problems, so we moved back in with my grandparents, and they, it was a three-room apartment, uh, like a railroad design, and they, at times, would put me out on the fire escape, because um, there was no bed inside for me. They, they, my wife always wants me to tell people that um, during the winter and cold and rainy and snowy days, they took me inside. <laughs> um and so how did I get from being sleeping out on a fire escape, uh, looking out on the street and seeing all the action out there to becoming a neurostrategist? And the, it goes through the, for that we have to discuss a little bit, my dad, Sam Feinberg. And see, he was in, uh, in the late 60s and 70s in New York City, he was a big time bookie. And he didn't want me to go into the family business. <laughs> uh, he was... A big time bookie is someone who, someone, um, I just presume people know what a bookie is, but a bookie is uh, someone who takes the bets, people's bets. And um, he, at one point in time, there was uh, one day he, the, uh, he lost 10K, that, or, or 10 large is what they, how they used to say it in, in um, bookie parlance, that's $10,000. About ninety-five thousand dollars today. The average income back then was about fifty-seven, fifty-nine hundred dollars, and so it was huge stress. <laughs> but here's the, here's the kicker, so to speak, is that by the end of the day, um, he won money because there was a single bet, and it 
there was multiple bets with sports books booking sports betting and it went over a period of time you know every day 24 7 and it repeated itself the next day so that really that intensity really affected my brain it's still affecting my brain um and the uncertainty I, in fact, I, I say that I was uh, in a training program, a master training class um, in handling and mishandling uncertainty. And our brains, as you know, Toby, our brains are, to, to a large extent, designed to resolve uncertainty. And so how it goes about doing it and the way we, our assumptions that we have to resolve that uncertainty affect our decisions, our relationships, the outcomes, and how well we perform. So that early scenario uh, began the process of my becoming a, a professional uh, executive coach and neurostrategist. And neurostrategy is the area, what I talk about is the area of brains, how our brains make decisions, how our, we influence our brains or, or get influenced by others. And games, it's like there's an underlying game that's being played that oftentimes, in fact, I think most of the times people don't realize. And then the foes. Foes are what we're up against. And it could be a, a physical challenge. It could be a circumstance that um, they are currently enduring. Or it could be a person who's a foe. So I'm interested in all those. And then the underlying patterns that create the exceptional. Okay. And in terms of, I wanted to, to kind of expand more on something you brought up about the brain being sort of this, this conflict resolution machine. So what, how does that come into play um, kind of with that knowledge in terms of your coaching? Um, what is, what is the impact of, of knowing that? Well, so the brains are, the, the neuroscience are, uh, have, scientists have identified that the brain uh, one of its main functions is designed to resolve uncertainty. So it's resolving the uncertainty that we encounter. It's also a patterning machine, right? And it's always always trying to predict. One of the patterns is prediction. So how those patterns operate in ourselves in, with, um, in working with executives and working with friends or colleagues or interacting with them is the those interactions are the underlying patterns of the games that we to deal with. I, you know, it's obvious that we are in a era of uncertainty and um, the epidemic failure of leaders is the ability to adapt to the uncertainty. So in coaching, it's like, how, what, how are they adapting to this uncertainty? There's pressure to succeed or they'll fail. Right. There's, you know, in some situations, there's pressure that's just self self generate. But some there's actually they have to succeed. They have to, or, or there's real consequences. So um, but I, what I say is this. Uh, can they adapt is part of the problem is, are they actually seeing the game board that they're playing on? Um, that there's the blind spot of that has caused so many the inability to adapt is maintained by an unconscious routine in their brain. And that's, you know, you know, the expression, the way of understanding is the expression, if at first you don't succeed, try, 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 try again. again, right? Um, push harder, right? 
It's always this push harder, uh, this willpower alone will do it. Um, and it's this kind of hidden rule in our brain that's the assumptions that we have. And the, what what goes along with that is that we it seems people have, you know, when it comes to uncertainty and dealing with it and resolving those things, people um, say, well, there's a fear of the unknown. Well, that, that's not quite accurate. There's really more, it's a fear of letting go of the known. And so part of it is like, how are people dealing with letting go of the known with, with, through all this change, through all this uncertainty? And um, let me give you an example, if I kind of, of, of a coaching session that I did with someone. These two executives are having, um, they have an objective that requires them to work together. Um, one of them named Graham, he's a task commander, right? He gets stuff done. He makes it happen. He delivers high quality results. And he's very high up on the food chain, very competent, good guy, makes it happen. Like, like straight going after it. Keep, you know, the kind of guy when you say keep your eye on the prize, that's all he's doing. <laughs> and he rallies people to go do that. This colleague who he's having some difficulty with, uh, Robert tends to be identify all the complexities that most people miss in advance. So he's looking at multiple ways, what's being missed and what could cause a problem at the end or uh, in the middle. So he's trying to resolve those, his brain is trying to resolve those things early on. Right? One guy is trying to get going, the other's trying to resolve things before he gets going, right? And so these, there's this clash of patterns, of, of ways of doing things. And they each have their own agenda and their way of doing it. That's their known way. And they don't want to risk losing that. Right? And when they come in and they can't see it, right? they're just successful guys who want to make it happen, but they can't, and my hands going together, is they're actually clashing with each other. So I said to them, um, you know, some people would do a lot of internal with the mindset kinds of stuff, which is okay and useful and necessary, but it wasn't sufficient for this situation. Is what I said to them is you, have, you guys have a punctuation problem. And they looked at me like queer quizzically and like, what are you talking about, Stephen? <laughs> I said, well, it's like you're both trying to get start. You're both trying to become, you know, like just go make it happen. If Robert, who's this person who's trying to come up with the complexities, goes first, Graham feels he's being held back. And if Graham goes first, Robert feels like he's not including what's necessary blind spots that are going to blindside them. And so they're always arguing in this situation. Um, both wonderful guys, both pleasant personalities and, and smart as can be. And I said to him, well, what th why don't we rearrange the sequence of, the, of how this works? Why don't Robert, you go first, come up and, and Graham, you ask him all the questions. Robert, you ask Graham all the questions about this situation. And when Robert, when you've satisfied all the potential complexities that you can see, because he's like this kaleidoscopic brain working through all possibilities and he comes up with it he says okay i'm now i'm ready to go hand it off to graham and get out of the way the two of them looked at me they blinked twice and they go deal together they both said we could do that 
and they are phenomenally productive, phenomenally impactful in terms of the way they approach things now. In fact, they're good friends, right? And they've gone off to other activities. Now they're in different worlds, but they, they, they still stay connected to each other. So it wasn't about, you know, some deep interpersonal issue. It was about the brains, the way their brains coded things and the way they resolve things that needed to be understood in the pattern of play, the game board that they were at odds with. And so, you know, this expression, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, it's really the, maybe an updated version was if at first you don't succeed, do more of the same, do more of the same. And that tendency to do more of the same is the actual problem, staying in with the familiar. The familiar is really the enemy. Right, right. So that, that's so interesting. So by actually learning how the other person's brain is working and how it might be functioning differently from yourself, that could actually greatly enhance sort of the, the synergy in terms of a, you know, executive team, it sounds like. Yeah, well, understanding the brain, but understanding the game mm -hmm. along with it, because you can understand the brain and do mindset stuff. But if you understand the game board that they're playing on and what needs to be done, so you need the inner, my experience, you need both inner game changes and updates and raising the inner game as well as changing the outer game, the strategic outer game, and to be able to do what I call do the strategic math on the, on the game board to figure out what's going to happen. Got it. Got it. Okay. So I wanted to get into some some topics in your new book um, that uh, do what others say can't be done. And I can show uh, you that book because here it is. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Very cool. Um, yeah. So so in terms of that, you know, I know you you touch on uh, a few different behaviors that first adapters um, are able to leverage. Um, so you mentioned game spotting pattern busting and frame setting. Can we yeah. kind of break down each of those, maybe starting with game spotting? Yeah, so first of all, let, let's back up and go. So what I realized is, is that uh, people who are able to spot what's missing, who are able to make game-changing, game-winning moves when confronted by uncertainty, when uncertainty strikes, are people I call first adapters not first responders, not early adopters, but first adapters. And I use the term adapters um, because uh, one way of thinking about it is in acupuncture in West, in, in um, Chinese Eastern medicine, Chinese medicine, adaptation, ability to adapt, biologically adapt and adapt to the stresses from the outside is an indication of health. And so, so your capacity to adapt is critical. And with all the stress and uncertainty, it's almost like that ability, it's almost going beyond our ability, the brain's ability to adapt. It's going so fast. And so this it's creating more uncertainty. So the people who are first adapters are people who use their brain. The brain is an energy miser. So it has so much energy. So they're putting their attention on these three specific behaviors to become game changers and game winning decisions. And those three behaviors are what you indicated are, they are game spotting, pattern busting, frame setting. So game spotting, 
is basically seeing the hidden gain boards that you're on. I'll just give you a brief definition. We can go into it after. So game, if you, you spot the game, you see the options that others don't see. Pattern busting is the ability to defy expectations. So our brains are patterning machines. We tend to get patterns. And like I said earlier, the pattern, some patterns are um, become familiar to us. It's a good thing. We know we can count on it. But sometimes those patterns, that familiarity makes it really impossible. We get stuck in our patterns. So you want to be able to defy expectations, which is defying the patterns that we get stuck on or the patterns of, of the issues that we're dealing with. And the third thing is frame setting, which is the ability to influence other people. So you want to be able to do those three things. You want to be um, game spotting, you want to spot the game that, board that you're on, see options you don't. You want to be pattern busting. You want to be able to see do what others say can't be done, which is the name of the book. And you want to be able to be frame setting, which is be able to frame the future. So first adapters really frame the future. Look out into the future. Just like JFK back in my day, JFK talked about going, sending a person to the moon and bringing them back safely within the decade. He framed the future for the country about our space travel. Right. And and I wanted to ask in, in terms of that, what, what do you think it is about great leaders who are able to be very influential and very persuasive in kind of rallying a whole set of people, a culture, a country uh, to to follow them, what what sort of traits have you noticed, or, or what are they doing to really, you know, I guess frame set and be able to strongly influence others? Well, I think that's the the key point is that if you your ability to influence others is the pivotal ability of a leader. Right. And to have the impact that they want to be able to connect to the people. Right. And so the, the influence is about what's significant and it's speaking to what's significant to the person's brain to. So it's emotional. So when you frame something, the ability to frame is you frame meaning for the person. And so the particularly skilled leaders are framing meaning and in for people and talking about that meaning in terms of predicting the future. We're always, our brains are trying to predict what's going to happen next. And the person who's capable of telling us what's going to happen next, whether it's in the room or on a, on a larger scale, is going to be extremely influential. And so they are thinking about the futures. Futures is a big part of it. So that we can make decisions and what we can rely upon and give a, allow us to um, they take the unfamiliar and make it familiar, you know, and at the same time, they get stuck in the familiar, or we all do get stuck in the familiar and can't get, move past it. So it's that ability to, the, what, the, what the great leaders are doing is they're connecting the dots, the deeper dots across the chaos chasm. So there's all this uncertainty, all this unknown, all this uncertainty. So their ability to connect the dots across the chaos chasm brings us to this new place. And that's what we want in our leaders. I see. Okay. How about other other traits of, you know, you you've worked with all of these top organizations. What what other traits have you noticed that uh that great leaders are able to possess? 
Well, here's an interesting factor is that great leaders provide protection, right? So if you think um, it's sometimes when I first say that to leaders, they sometimes look at me quizzically and they wonder, you know, like I'm supposed to provide protection. I said, well, 100% that people are looking to feel safe. <laughs> you know, it's part of the brain. The brain wants to be safe. It wants something that's familiar. So you need to provide some safety while you're taking them to someplace new. So providing protection, kind of like um, whatever the people's political persuasion is, one of the things we looked to after 9-11 in the United States when the, the, the U.S. was attacked by some terrorists was, can you protect us? from future attacks. That was what the consciousness was. And we were looking to leaders, we were looking to, in that case, President Bush, to protect the country, protect people from future attacks. And so leaders have to really think about that. You know, it, it, you know there's business issues. And so if you get it down to real worlds, can you make, protect my job? You know, can you, Keep me from, you know, get having financial loss. Can you provide some um, guidance in what's going to happen next so I can um, resolve the uncertainty in my mind? Right? And so this is a very important factor. Is so framing the future and protecting them are two of the, the really big things. The third, another one is their ability. I think one of the big things that leadership is all about getting it right. It's the province of getting it right. And, you know, that's like the, the uh, old joke about the young, young guy goes to the old, old wise man on the mountain. He goes, how do you get such, how do you get to be so wise? How do you get, and, he's, and the old wise guy says, good judgment. And the young guy says, where'd you get that good judgment? And the old man says, from bad judgment. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, we have make mistakes and we have to learn from them. So we have to quickly respond to that. But the ability to get it right is also an important. It's on your watch. If you're the leader, no matter if everyone else screws up, it's still on your watch. So it's your ability to get everybody on the same page. Right. I often hear executives say the hardest thing is get everyone on the same page. So that capacity to have conversations with people and give meaning and influence, get everyone on the same page and send messages that are clear and quick and succinct, that they understand what actions can be taken to keep them moving forward, that will get it right. And it's, it's really the province of getting things right that matters for leaders. Okay. And when, when you, know, you hear people talk about someone being like a born leader, how much of that, you know, do you think is something that that is maybe part of someone's personality type that they're just very strong in those leadership capacities versus how much of that can actually be instilled, say, through, you know, your your neurostrategy coaching and, and other coaching practices? Um, desire matters. <laughs> you know, if people don't have the desire, then... Um then you're like pushing a rope in terms of leadership. So first of all, the, does this person have the desire to lead? Do they have the desire to have the impact that they want? If they don't have that impact, the desire, then um, I don't, you can teach them skills, but they're not going to apply them. 
Right. So absolutely, I think desire matters in the in terms of um, are they is it nurture or or nature, right? Um, and in my opinion, it's I tend to um, lean towards nurture that you can nurture leadership. You can give otherwise, I wouldn't have been in the business for forty years. You know, and, and helping people become better leaders. Um, but but there's a certain kind of level, there's a certain set level that has to be there. And then from there, you can, um, you there's leadership. Look, the notion of leadership is going to be very, as most direct as parents. Parents, anyone who's got to influence someone else is leading, right? And so if you're a parent, you're influencing your child's experience. You're, you're creating an environment in which the kid can be the best that they can be, right? That's leadership, right? So it doesn't have to be leading a, a big organization or a president of, of a country, but it's the it's that desire or the intent or the expectation that you are providing, you're influencing the outcome in a, in a real way. So if anytime, most people bungle influence and that's part of what is knowing what to do is how to, to, to see the game board that they're on, that they're bungling it. Because they're stuck in, you know, if at first you don't succeed, do more of the same, do more of the same. And how's that working for you? You know, I often ask people, so how's it working for you? And if it's not, let's do something different. Right. Okay. So I see when I wanted to ask you, like, you know, in terms of in terms of your ability to have sort of worked your way to where you're at in terms of being a neurostrategist for a lot of you know really really big companies you know that I mentioned like in in the introduction including Apple Google Visa um what what do you think what sort of traits did you have to instill in yourself or what sort of skills did you have to personally learn in order to become this expert neurostrategist um, well, it all started out with curiosity, right? So you have to be curious. Right? Um, and I think, you know, they sometimes say the curiosity killed the cat, but I always say that the cat had nine lives. <laughs> so one of the things, one of the traits is you have to be able to, to rebound from the mistakes. You have to be able to recover. You have to be resilient is, is the term that's used often now. Um, and I, for me, it, no, I was interested in, uh, as a psychologist, when I was, I was interested in motivation, like what motivates people to do what they do. Um, and then I got interested in, in my education, teaching people, and at the university was about competence. So it was first as motivation, then it was about competence, like how, how, how do people do what they do? How, what makes people effective, successful? And then more recently, it's about creating the exceptional or creating advantages. Like, how do you go about, and that's what neurostrategy is, how do you create the exceptional? And there's different levels that I had, that I came to at various points in my life to, due to um, um, what was intriguing to me. So I followed an inner, you know, I, a lot of what I did was what, if I can back up, when when I was in 
uh, kid, I wanted to become a doctor to help people. So I had like a 12, when I was 12 years old, I think I'll become a doctor. And I was pretty much on that path. You know, I went to college, went to pre-med, and then I met organic chemistry. <laughs> and it's the it's the equalizer. You know, it, it's the separator, not the equalizer. It's the separator. Right. Those people who do really well in organic chemistry can get, get into uh, med schools. Those people who don't go elsewhere, wherever elsewhere it might be. Um, and for me, what when I the story that when I was taking my final for organic chemistry, I had the flu or something. I was sweating. And I, you have to take it. That's the day you have to show up. You show up. And I, I looked at the first page. I knew how to sign my name, you know, Stephen Feinberg, and the, you know, a couple other details. And then the second page, the problem, I went, oh, my God, I have no idea what that means. You know, it's like it was like organic chemistry to me. It was Greek. I didn't know what it meant. And I turned to the next page and I went, oh, I think I know this symbol. And then the next page, and I wrote a few things. The fellow sitting to my right, about two seats, two, they separated by two or three seats. It was a big auditorium, and there were like 300 kids in the unit, you know, in the class, students, all the students. Um, and it was spread out, so we couldn't cheat. You know, that's what we're very concerned about. Well, this guy was writing volumes, volumes. I kept looking at him, and he was like, encyclopedias were coming off his pages, right? And I'm like looking at this blank. You know, I went, uh-oh. I'm in trouble. <laughs> I handed the test, did as best as I could. A uh, week goes by, they give us the results. And I um, the, I got my results and I got a nine out of 100. <laughs> it's not, I'm laughing now because at the time I wasn't. But you know, I got a nine and I thought, that's not really going to get cut it. Right. If I'm mm -hmm. doing surgery on somebody, so how do you do an organic chemistry? I got a nine. You know, mm -hmm. I don't think it, it inspires confidence. Um, but the other it meant what a nine was was a mid-level C. That's how bad the test was. It was ridiculous. That means the guy sitting to my right was actually he ruined the curve. <laughs> <laughs> it was like brilliant, top-notch, great, you know, I'm sure he's doing something great in, in the medical fields now. Um, but I w w went on a search afterwards. I was done with medicine. I had to talk to my parents. You know, this was my life dream. My passion, my hope was gone, right? And smoke, up and smoke. It was all during the Vietnam War and the cops were on campus and everything was topsy-turvy. And I was going, all this uncertainty, right? Which I've been trained to handle in so many ways, but still affects you. Um, and I took an assessment instrument called the Miller Analogy Test. I think I might have mentioned that to you once before, Toby. It's a Miller Analogy Test is basically uh, looks at analogies. A is like B, like C is like D, right? Of this fruit is like that fruit, like that piece of machinery is like this piece of machinery. So all kinds of variations, ups and downs, and you rearrange your thinking and everything like that. Well, clearly I had been crushed Bioorganic chemistry. But on the Miller analogy test, I crushed it. Right. And I discovered that all these patterns that I was able to see was because I was trained as a little kid in seeing patterns around the uncertainty, around dealing with the things my dad was going through. And I discovered that I had been patterning 
the game, the relationships between things. And our brains are looking at these relationships between things to look at the game board, to look at the games, to look at the patterns. And I could see it instantly. I could just, it was like amazing because I had built up enough neural circuit capacity to do that, right? And so then I went on to the, the discoveries that people who scored the highest in that arena were the psychologists. You know, that look at relationships between things and connections, uh, you know, and connecting the dots, if you will. And was so that went on? Okay. And it was that is that like a common thing? Like, did you ever run into other psychologists who had sort of had a similar failed organic upbringing? chemistry? Well, no, 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 not specifically <laughs> with that. I'm sure. I'm sure with that. Um, uh, yeah, I, I definitely was not able to to do that in college. Um, it's funny because my my you know my my um, daughter's husband, my son-in-law, his his dad is. The number one, he wrote the book on organic chemistry. We, he's a sweetheart of a guy, right? But he actually, I, you know, I didn't know him at the times when I was going through school, but we're about the same age. And he actually wrote the book on organic chemistry. <laughs> so I joke around with him about that a little bit. That's pretty funny. <laughs> he's not very impressed with me <laughs> about organic chemistry. Then. Right. Really <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. What um what I was gonna ask though, that like in terms of your brain sort of being all the, the neural circuitry that you mentioned sort of being wired to sort of be searching for patterns even from a young age, is that something that you found like that those sort of early childhood influences have had like for other people? Have that has that resulted in like a similar sort of like line of work of like a lot of those people also becoming psychologists? I, I well, Toby, I think you just found your research project. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, uh, I mean, the, I mean, there's lots of people, lots of studies about early childhood and what people do and so on and different um, discoveries about how they make decisions and so on. But I don't know that, that the way we just framed it is, it, I don't know studies about that. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so what what other I'm really good at knowing what I don't know? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I try to which, ask which is, part of, which is part of which is part of the the uh, piece about that when I say the the error, the problem is that it's familiarity that is the foe, right? It's, it's staying within the known, right? As if as if this is all there is, and our brains tend to stay within the known. Because they're saving energy. Right? If something works, it works, right? and and that's okay. But when you're put into a context where there's moving more moving parts, the number of variables gets larger. It's harder to to navigate that. And if you default to only what you know, you get you get into that escalating battle with either yourself or other people, and so on. Are there any sort of practices or exercises that can help people get more comfortable sort of sitting in the unknown? Well, it's it's being able, I think one of the ways people talk about it is that there you're attached to the known. And it's like realizing that's oftentimes the known is the story you're telling yourself about things, right? So what's the story? But the game, when I talk about games, I often... Um, Think about that it's an, a game is viewed as an in, interacting patterns or an inter, a pattern of interactions, right? Which 
um, a story between players in which there are objectives, rules, and rewards. And so trying, beginning to understand what are the rules, what are the objectives, what are the rewards here, begins to help you understand what is it that I'm, how, what are my tendencies here? What's my, ten, how do I play the game? I think one of the big things is people miss understanding that there's a game being played. They're not, their brains shut off or have blind spots to what it is. They don't see the field of play. And so being able to begin to understand what the field of play is that they're on. Like um, I, one of the my clients wanted to get a promotion, which is a classic kind of thing. I want to get a promotion. And I'm get I'm stuck for some reason. I'm not getting getting the promotion. What is there something I'm doing? What's you know, you know, I need to work on myself. And first thing we did was I asked him questions about the his social milieu, his the the companies, how the company promoted people, who the company promoted, what was the process that they went through. I wanted to understand the game board of getting a promotion not who he was on the game board initially. What was the game board? And I said to him early on, I said, you're on an unfair game. You're playing an unfair, you know, the game board is tilted. It's an unfair game that you're playing. And you're playing, and your tendency, and then I asked him questions about himself, and his tendency was to be a good soldier. So here's a guy, good guy, good soldier, delivered, worked hard, and expected someone to give him promotions. That's not how that game board was set. It was an unfair game board. So we had to work on how he could bust that pattern so that he could get to another level and not be stuck in the um this, this unfair game and with a pat with an in so his internal game had to raise, but the but he had to read the, the, the game board as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. How about like, I feel like some of what you're talking about, it, it sounds a lot like kind of like emotional intelligence concepts. Like, is that like when you hear people talk about like IQ versus EQ, you know, in terms of sort of leadership, is right. that, is that like, am I on the, the right path there in terms well, I think of emotional intelligence is really important. We all need emotion. We all, uh, you know, I, I, I hope it's say that, that how is it a group I'm with when I was working with teams? How is it a group of uh, executives or individuals whose individual IQ was 130, had a team IQ of 100, right? It's like they weren't operating with their intelligence because they didn't have, in a lot of ways, they didn't have emotional intelligence. And most of the thing they didn't have is what all teams need is an agreed upon method by which to operate. They didn't have that set is this is how we're going to operate so we can use our respective individual intelligences. My, I, I developed an instrument years ago uh, called the brain shift IQ. So while emotional intelligence is important, I view the, the ability to the, the um, uh, fluid intelligence part of the brain the, that I view was the shift intelligence that made the difference, be able to shift the, the way in which you you operated in the world. So like there were five shifts that I evaluated that was um, the shifting the question, your ability to shift the question in a situation so that you can be innovative. Your um, 
your ability to shift time, to go into the future, go into the present or the past, how quickly and fluidly you were able to do that. You're shifting the interactions in your relationships, how you interact. I say the road to hell is paved with mishandled interactions. So you're, how, how well are you shifting your interactions? Um, shifting perceptions. So how you perceive things. Do you perceive the game board? Do you perceive how to, or you understand how people perceive things so you can influence them? And then the final one is uh, S, or is structure, shifting the structure. So being able to shift the exact, the rules of play of the game that you're playing. I call that the Q-tips, five, you know, the acronym is Q-tips, question, time, interaction, perception, structure. So that's your shift intelligence. In fact, the, the first book, I reached over here for my books, is the first book I wrote, it was called The Advantage Maker, because I talk a lot about shift intelligence in that, which is a little different, but it's along the same path of what you're talking about. Awesome. Five examples of what those five ships are like. Very cool. Okay. So, so Stephen, we're, we're did I answer your question? You did. You did. Yes, definitely. Okay. <laughs> um, we're we're coming up on to the end of the show today, but um, you know, in terms of uh, with with everything that we've talked about with leadership, is there anything else that we haven't yet covered, um, or or any other projects that uh, say? books or other projects that you're planning on working on in the future that you feel like are really important, you know, components of leadership that, uh, that people really need to know about? Well, you know, in terms of working with people, uh, what I always look at it, are they able to play the metagame, what I call the metagame, the game of games, right, which is the game of patterns. So to what extent are they playing this deeper game, seeing what's missing, and doing the this idea that I've just presented earlier about game spotting, pattern busting, and frame setting is really at the heart of people the ability to create the exceptional. So what I want people to be able to do, one leader at a time when I work with them or with groups, is to um, is to advance civilization one leader at a time, is to really bring them to the next level that matters. In a, in a deeply meaningful way and an impactful way in, in whatever is appropriate on a real world basis, not just in their in, in their thinking, but in their, you know, you have to elevate their thinking, right? And you have to accelerate their influence and have be able to have game-changing conversations. That capacity enables people, what I believe is that f creates forward-thinking leaders to create the exceptional. And they they deserve to do that. And they, the people want to do that are the people that I um, most gravitate to be some, some support and help and insights for. Got it. Well, Stephen, really enjoyed our conversation today. If, if people um, also enjoyed um, listening, you know, to you talk about leadership, what, uh, where would you direct them to like find out more about your work, to find your books? I know you, uh, you had mentioned, or I had seen on, on your media kit, that you gathered a couple audience giveaways. Um, tell us all about that. <laughs> Two for ones, get them right now. <laughs> They're hot. Um, if you go to my website, www.stevenfeinberg.com, it's S-T-E-V-E-N, Feinberg is F as in family, E as in Edward, I as in identity, N as in Nancy, B as in boy, E as in Edward, R as in Robert, G as in girl.com. If you go to my website, there are um, currently there's 
a free chapter of this book, Do What Others Say Can't Be Done. By the way, it's the forward is written by an astronaut who flew to the International Space Station twice. So he was uh, someone who was a client and also is now a friend, terrific guy. You know, they you talk about people going, spacemen going out to outer space. Well, here's, here's a guy who's so down to earth and a regular guy and a big hearted guy, and brilliant also. You know, it's a great guy. And his, his, um, wrote the forward to the book. Um, so you can go there and you get the chapter, the the um, one of the chapters of the book. But there's also I just added uh, an assessment instrument called the First Adaptive Scorecard, and the First Adaptive Scorecard will evaluate you in relationship to people who are exceptional for free. Both of these are things for free. Exceptional, your ability to game spot, game spotting, pattern busting, and frame setting. So you get a report from from that so you, both of those are available on my site cool I, i'm definitely definitely excited to take that uh first adapter assessment myself i'll be curious yeah. to to hear um you know what the audience uh audience's results as well yeah let so, me know absolutely and uh for the audience who who enjoyed this episode you guys can listen to uh full episodes on spotify apple podcasts stitcher or most other major audio streaming platforms if you actually want to uh, instead view the video, you can find us on YouTube at Neuroflex is the name of the channel, N-U-R-O-F-L-E-X. You can watch the full video episodes there. So Stephen, again, you know, thank you so much for coming on the show today, just sharing all your knowledge and expertise. I really appreciate your time. I hope you got, you and your audience got something of value from it. I enjoyed myself. <laughs>